0: Hello and welcome to Just
1: Keep Writing,
2: a podcast for writers, by writers to keep you writing.
1: I'm Marshall. I'm LP. And I'm Will. Oh, I'm doing the intro. Yes, okay, you do. So it. Usually it's Marshall. This is great. <laughs> so, hi everyone. Welcome this evening. We have um my friend CS Mellrich here to discuss her book The Factory Witches of Lowell. Welcome Charlotte. Ooh.
3: Hey, welcome! So I'm so happy to be here. It's really nice to talk to all of you.
1: I'm so excited that we actually get to talk um, about your novella from tour, which came out in uh, it came out in 2020, right? It did. Yeah, yeah. During the apocalypse, and I know, and we'll get into this later, but I know with everything going on and publishing during the apocalypse, you know. Uh, maybe some things didn't get as highlighted as good as they should be. So I've been wanting to do this interview since the book came out. So I'm so excited we finally got to like meet our schedules and have a really good time. So we asked this next question to all of our guests, and it always throws them off, um, even if they're expecting it. Um, I just want you to describe writing The Factory Witches of Lowell in three words that could be completely unrelated. What comes to mind?
3: Accidental, necessary, and mm, friends. Yeah. Oh.
1: <laughs> Amazing. All right, so it's we're going to kind of un- <laughs> unpack those words. So accidental, talk to me about, you know, that word.
3: Um so I the Factory of Witches of Lowell kind of came out of um, me thinking about a magical system for a novel that I was writing and uh, that would be set kind of contemporary uh, universe. And I wanted to go back and see what this magic system looked like like in history. Um and I kind of had been playing with it in my head a lot. It's the labor of theory of value, just in a magical form. Um, and so I, I, I was like, well, I need to kind of show this um, in some sort of early capitalist uh, like labor struggle. Um, what... What struggles would there be? Um, wh- where would it be set? What kind of what kind of industry, what kind of workers, what would they be doing? How would uh, this play out? And I didn't really um, feel the need to like actually sit down and write it until I saw a call for um, an anthology um, called Long Hidden. Um, sitting on my shelf, and they were asking for uh, writers to do historical fantasy from perspectives that often didn't get highlighted, uh, whether that was a racial minority or an ethnic minority or just from a working class perspective. So I that kind of stuck on my head. Someone else who was in my writing group was working on a story for the same anthology, and I thought, hey, why not? Let me try this. Um, and that's when I started writing it, um, and actually decided, "Hey, this is like this, the labor struggle that I'm going to use. It's going to be set in Lowell, Massachusetts. I'm going to write about these badass young women um, going on strike." And um, and it was not a short story at all. Uh, it was not done by the time the anthology deadline was passed, and. Um, it was like a way bigger story than I could fit into 7,500 words. So I uh, kind of like kept it in my back pocket and worked on it from time to time. Um, and then finally finished it, finished a draft of it and gave it to my writing group and, and then didn't do anything with it for a while and <laughs> uh, went to a writing workshop um and and brought it out there and and then finally said like all right i i think i know where i want this to go and um tour just happened to have um a call for open submissions coming up so i i threw it out into that ether and um very very fortunately um carl angle laird liked it and and asked me if I wanted to publish with them. So I did. Uh,
1: That's amazing. So with that being said, will you give us a little pitch um, to tell our listeners, like, describe the Factory Witches of Lowell?
3: So the Factory Witches of Lowell is a historical fantasy about a real strike um, among the textile workers in the 1830s in Lowell, Massachusetts. Uh, but with some extra magic and witchcraft added in, so that uh, the the union is actually more successful than they were in um, in real life. Yeah, that's factory witches. role <laughs> yeah. So awesome.
1: <laughs> uh, let's talk about the next word then. Necessary. Why did that word come to mind?
3: I am someone who has been supportive of workplace organizing for a long time. And uh, really feels that that's where our power is as working class people. Um, and I was ideologically wed to that idea um, quite early on in my life, um, but hadn't actually seen it or experienced it for myself. Um, just knew it kind of on a theoretical level. And I. You know, I enjoyed playing with that idea a lot in my fiction and fantasy that I was writing. And by the time I actually sat down to write it, I think I had really come to understand and believe that we needed a, um, a pop culture that made workplace organizing more normal um, and just something that people did. Uh, Because I wasn't really seeing a lot of those stories. And I realized that that might be part of what was holding me back as a a worker myself. And so (laughs) it kind of all came together in that in 2020, the year that this book was going to be coming out was the opportunity that in the state where I live, the law changed for public sector workers, which I am. And I, uh, then had the opportunity to start organizing at my workplace, though it, in a weird way, I had kind of written myself the story that I wanted to live and I had written a, about a workplace of people who didn't always get along, but were quite close and, uh, and had each other's backs ultimately. Um, and I think by living through that in a fantasy world, it made it easier and realer for me to live it in my actual life. Um, and, uh, I mean, I remember a coworker saying to me, like when I started talking about unions and stuff on the show, she's like, this is like a thing that you've just been waiting to do, haven't you? Like, this is a, a thing <laughs> that like you've been preparing for, for a long time. And I was like, yeah, I think it is. I have this book coming out. Um, and I, I think that's the thing. <laughs> that's the thing that maybe, um, it may not the only thing, but the one thing that like pushed me over the edge and was like, hey, like you just got to do this and you just got to make this part of your life. So that's kind of what I mean when I say necessary. And I think it also, I'm not unique in that like a lot of people have been kind of feeling powerless for a long time and looking for ways to be activists and uh, looking for ways to be effective activists um, and I think that the kind of explosion of organizing and talking about unions, like what's going on at Amazon and Starbucks, that we've seen in the last couple of years, I, it's not an accident, um, and it's not an accident that this is the time when, like, I had this story ready to go. So, yeah, I think that's just kind of like the the period of history that we're in, um, and it's exciting. It's an exciting yeah. place
1: to be. I'm going to have another, I'm going to ask you a couple more questions to your some of the points you've made already, but I want to go to the last word that you said to describe the book, writing it, and it was friends. So why'd that come up?
3: Um, I could not have done this without the kindness of a lot of friends along the way um, who gave me the space to write and the respect uh, to, to take the time and the energy to write when maybe it would have been more fun uh, or more rewarding for them to have me doing something else. The friend that had gotten me into that writing group who wrote this the story that eventually went into long hidden um, was incredibly important. Um, Another member of that writing group was incredibly important because he was the one that read it and said like, this is a romance. These two characters, they're in love with each other.' They're, they're so in love with each other and you just have to write them that way. And And that was one of the things that made it click for me. and and just the the kind of the friendships that I've had with other people um, on the job, I, I've never worked in a a textile factory in the 1830s. So (laughs) I have, but I have to take something from my real life, like my, my actual relationships with coworkers to put it into the way that these coworkers are interacting in the story. And I, I think I, you know, I imagined a lot of it from, um, it's a really well historically documented period, um, so I imagined a lot of it from from the sources that I had, but also just from uh, from working in a place where there are a lot a lot of women, a lot of Femi people, a lot of uh, people who care about each other and tease each other and and get really involved in each other's lives uh, in a way that maybe seems inappropriate to Pam Beasley on the office or, um, (laughs) or what we like imagine, um, a workplace should be like on a a professional level. But yeah, I think that's, that's why friends are really important, um, to getting this book out.
1: Can you share, uh, what you actually do, um, besides your writing life, like what your main job is?
3: I work in a library. Um, I'm a library assistant. Um, so I move books all day and I talk to people about books all day. Saint. That's awesome.
1: Yeah, That's awesome. you are doing the Lord's work, the universe's work. <laughs> the Lord.
2: You don't talk about the Lord. We talk about Lordisa. Doing Lordisa's yeah, work. Exactly.
1: <laughs> so I want to ask about even like, I love what you said about you were writing this and it was about, and that person said, you know, you've been waiting for something like this and, you know, in your real job. And I felt like that was the magic in and above itself because it was all about manifestation, right? But I want to talk about a union and I'll tell you why I really, well, one, you know, I love your writing. Me and um, Charlotte went to a workshop together. So that's how we know each other. Um, and I've always loved your writing. And so I was so excited when this book came out, but specifically for me, it was, um, an even deeper connection. And I want to ask this question first before I tell my little story that I want to share with you. I've been meaning to tell you this for the past couple of years, but I wanted to make sure we're doing it in it, like sort of in person <clears throat> um, for the unions. Did you grow up in like a very union oriented family where they talked about these issues or was it more of something like in when you were growing up in more of an an adult world that you started thinking about the power of people, the power of togetherness to make things have equanimity in life?
3: Um, I didn't grow up in a family that talked about unions at all. Um, I only just recently, like in the last couple of years, learned that my dad was in a union um, because I had started organizing at my job and he was like, oh yeah, you know, that was a good thing for me. I think I first became aware of unions, um, like in history class, and as a, a probably a freshman in high school, um, and it it wasn't something that ever seemed or was presented as relevant to today. Um, I kind of I I grew up in a, a a pre 9 11 world where, um, and I, I kind of lived in a, in a bit of a, a nice, happy suburban bubble, uh, where I kind of imagined and was also encouraged to imagine that all the problems of the world had been solved. Um, and that social injustices didn't really happen anymore. So, um, it really wasn't until I was in college that I kind of got the shit kicked out of my inner sense and, um, and realized that that just wasn't the case uh, and started thinking more seriously about the way things are, are set up in our society. I mean, I think that contributed to like my desire to create a story that was uh, missing for me.
1: Yeah. So so for me, the reason I really gravitated to the story, so when I was a kid, my dad was in the union for what turned into be Verizon and it was Bell Telephone at the time, right? And my dad used to take me to these union marches and he became the president of his union. And this, I must've been in like first or second grade when I started going to these marches. And my dad would like explain to me about like why he needed to be in a union and what happens when people have too much power. And he would really, you know, my parents weren't always the best, but there's certain things they did really good. And this was one of them. And then I'll never forget being at a, a strike thing where they're like marching and we have like banners and everything. And my dad gets arrested by the cops. And like, In my neighborhood, we did not have a good relationship with the cops. But this was outside my neighborhood. So I thought automatically when the cops were taking my dad that they were going to kill him. Truly. This is what I thought. And I burst into tears. Right? And I – because, you know, they were, you know, there. And luckily, the officers actually were really kind. And they're like, we're not – your dad's not going to go to jail. You know, like this is part of the thing. Um, He did wind up going to jail. So he lied. But it was like – it was like – To be there for an interim, right? Because they were, you know, blocking things or whatever. So, when the book came out, so my dad has Alzheimer's. And uh, when the book came out, I started reading the book to him over the phone. Because my dad is just, it's like one of the things that he goes to is is constantly you know these stories about the union and he would always bring up about how he went to the union and so i read it to him you know during when it came out during the apocalypse and um this is still and he hasn't really been able to read he thinks he's reading but he's like rereading the same thing so i was like i'm gonna read this to him when i'm on the phone with him he still asks about the book oh oh
3: my gosh oh oh well that's amazing
1: So it's, like, one of the things that, like, I'm amazed, and I think part of that was about, you know, the connection of him being in the union, and I think also, like, you know, my dad was equally, like, liberal in a way, but then not. And so I think he also has been, like, uh, going through, like, kind of a recognition of how he was not forward thinking specifically with his daughters with my sisters and i think when he was like talking about this he started telling us stories about like other women in the union and like what they went through and then how he even thought like he never would read like women writers before right and it wasn't until we grew up reading women who wrote did he start like rethinking those things and rethinking of those ways of um what was progressive and i'm also bringing this up because of the one character that you have in here and his name i want to say boot right boot? Mm-hmm. yeah um yeah mr boot a brood boot yeah boot um sorry i couldn't i couldn't see. um how when we are introduced to this character he thinks he is these women are getting uh, a great living. They're uh, moving forward. They want to parade them upon these um, uh, Boston gentlemen of saying, this could be your daughter too. And it's so backwards. It is so, well, we're going to give you an inch and we're going to act like it's acres, mm. you know? <laughs> so when you were creating this character, was this like, um, a hard reach for you? Do you feel like it was really easy to create a character like that?
3: Um, yeah, Mr. Boot, so he's a real person. Um, and so I had a little bit of like kind of historical uh, documentation of what kind of person he was um, to go on. But yeah, I just um, I love to write liberal villains like the the characters who think like I am so wonderful and magnanimous and I have given you such a great shot um how could you possibly want more or want to make decisions for yourself when I'm doing such a good job for you um and that I mean, I think that's a that's a type, a character type that's always kind of resonated with me, um, that like paternalism and it, it often manifests like in a very sexist way um, in reality and in fiction. And it just, it felt like that, that was just the way this character had to be written um, for the the conflict uh, that was central to the story.
1: I mean, I really think, and then Marshall, you can go because I saw you had your hand up. Um, I really felt like, and there's going to be spoilers in here, everyone. So if you're listening, y'all just need to read the book. Um, I really felt like, even when the story ended, um, I still feel like he still felt like I, I don't get it. I really <laughs> gave these, you know, <laughs> these women a lot, and you're just like, dude, like, what are you, like, what is going on? And it reminds me of like, you know, like. All the toxic masculine people in our media, like Elon Musk, um, Donald Trump, you know, they think they give you um, the world, and you're just like you're barely giving me, quote unquote, giving me anything. I'm making you money, and you're still not paying me. Uh, Marshall, go ahead. You wanted to say something.
0: Okay, so a lot of this spoke to me um, in that I am I'm a teacher in a public school, and I work next door to the library at the school, which I love that you're uh, working at a library. Um, But I find that the, the, the union thing is really, really interesting. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where exactly where I want to go with this question, but I'm going to circle back to something will said a second ago about the care of the boot character uh, boot character. Um, I find like we've had admin like that where, you know, looking at the teachers when our morale is low and when we're not getting paid enough and we're working long hours and being like, what do you mean? I'm giving you all of this, all of this. Right. Um, I'm, I'm curious uh, and I love that. So I'm, I'm assuming that you helped get the union started um, where, where you are. Is that, am I assuming correctly? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so w- me coming into this union that's already been established the amount of times, how many years it takes for things to happen um, because we're up against characters like this. And I think, and, and I think what will story and, and your story doing this is I think really, I, it it really spoke to me. And I, so I guess what I'm asking is, have you seen what you were hoping to see in the unions that are happening? You know what I mean? That you, you brought up Amazon, you brought up these big companies and stuff like that. Um, is the shift is it as glacial as I feel in my union or is it actually shifting, I guess is the question. Um, Maybe that's it's, too big, That's a big question, but
3: <laughs> it's maddeningly slow. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really, really maddeningly slow. Um, if, if I had known in 2020 that like I was going to, you know, we were going to, be at the point where we are right now in 2023, I probably would have been like, uh, I don't know if I really need to spend that time doing this. Um, <laughs> so it's it's really slow. Um, I have a lot of thoughts about why that is. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, some of it has to do with uh, the the way that mainstream unions have really been neutered um, over the past seventy years, um, and and shifted away from uh, more militant and more direct action, and more just admitting that working class people have different interests than uh, the managerial class, we just do. Um, and it's not that they're evil um, and it's not that we're pure and good. Um, it's that we live in a system that create has emergent properties, right? Like we have different interests and so we're going to be asking for different things. Um, so if you you know, and it's really hard. It's really hard for my coworkers to say anything negative about their direct supervisor, um, or to take any kind of controversial or confrontational stand because they don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. Like it just genuinely comes from a place of, I want to get along with everyone. Um, and, and, and shying away from discomfort, um, even if it actually means that you are going to be more uncomfortable because you can't pay the rent or you don't know if your partner is going to be covered by your insurance next week. But you just you feel so uncomfortable asking or bringing this up that uh, that you'd rather not Um and it, it really bothers me like that we've kind of gotten to a point where we're so craven and cowed that way. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I would say, no, I haven't seen the the change that I want to see, but I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that it could get better. Yeah. Um, Marshall, I talked to a lot of teachers mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and I, I, part of what keeps me sane is I talk to a lot of people who are organizing at their own workplaces who don't work with me. Um, and we kind of compare notes oh, nice. and it, but it's really amazing, um, to see, cause I think teachers have like such a hard job, like it's emotionally exhausting and you're on all day. And yet, there are folks like who do that all day and still come home and have a conversation with me about organizing mm-hmm. and make plans to like talk to their coworkers and like I'm going to talk to this person at lunch tomorrow. I'm going to catch this person on recess and and we're going to figure it out. Um, so it it really is like quite amazing and I think that the only real way to do that is kind of what you were saying. Well, is just having that that group of people who are supporting each other so much and, and that community. And that's probably what your dad felt mm-hmm. and, and what, you know, what's still in there for him and what's resonating with him. Um, I will say like the more that I do this, the more that I see like, like Mr. Boot is not an unusual character. Like oh, this is tough. just like, so <laughs> it's, it's almost formulaic the way that the administrators behave um, like they feel so offended and personally offended when you let them know that things are not all okay. Things are not equitable. And, you know, it's like, I, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but yeah. that's just not the case.
0: And I know the feeling of feeling bad, almost bringing it to their attention too sometimes. Cause you're just like, look, I'm, I'm here, I'm doing my job, but like this, this, and this isn't, isn't working. And, and just to have that, that face, like see there, that reflected exact thing. It's just like, I cannot believe that this is what you're, you're saying. I thought I, I'm, I'm killing it. I'm doing a great job. Right. And it's like, uh, just let me just tell you about a couple of things. So, um, well, Best of luck. Honestly, Uh, (laughs) I I know my union reps, my union reps at my school are, they work all the time, you know, outside of school hours and just trying to get the best, you know, negotiations and stuff that they can. And it's, it's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of extra time and effort. It's not easy. So anyway.
2: Y'all are speaking to Gallo to me because I feel like all I do, the reason why my management hates me is because I'm constantly telling them where they're falling short, <clears throat> because <laughs> if I don't tell them where they're falling short, then I have an experience where they're constantly asking for more while doing less. And I'm like, mm-hmm. you can't do you can't expect me to work at a high level and you to manage at a medium level or a low level. Um, and that's one of those things that like there will be mandates from on high from upper management and then they're transmitted through middle management and the lower management is like yeah just make it happen i was like no you're the person who's supposed to figure out how to implement this it's and it's definitely not supposed to be me as like boots on the ground so in those ways i was like i don't know fuck your feelings um i don't care about how you feel (laughs) like you have a job to do just like i have a job to do and if i don't do my job well i have to get counseled i get a warning i'll get written up so when you're not doing your job well what am I supposed to do? Because I'm not yeah. doing this with you.
1: <laughs> you know, I think it's really interesting too. And I think Charlotte, you, you touch upon this about the book about, you know, the way capitalism works. Boot is worried about his bosses and about his way of life. And he even mentions in the book about, well, I deserve this house. Just like, you know, the upper management deserves like a really beautiful house. But he's also you know um in service to his employees even though he doesn't see it that way he feels like i'm giving you so much already um and i feel like we see this you know in our own society is you know people want to feel powerful and in charge and that they're above someone you know and i think that is just like What capitalism has created. And this is why we have to, as society, move beyond it. There has to be something better. And I think whenever you say that, people automatically like, well, socialism doesn't work. No one said socialism, everyone. Everyone said there has to be something better. You, we live, we, we've gone through so many wonderful things as human beings, like the things that we've been innovative and creative. Like we have to look beyond you know um and i feel like the book what you did really good is see that perspective from you know the villain of you know his thoughts but also the struggles of the women and i'm really thinking of like abigail specifically like she was so worried for her family that she was ready to cross that line you know even though in her heart she didn't want to let down her friends and um you know, and her, I feel like they're more like sisters because they're bonded through this experience, not just through just a spell, but they're like really bonded. So I want to kind of like, let's go back now to like Hannah and uh, Judith, who are kind of like the core of their stories, because I feel like what you did so great in the story is you sh- showed two different kinds of strength, right? <laughs> like Hannah is, um, deeply ill because of the work that she does she infuses it with magic and she's suffering you know she isn't able to do as much as the other women and then we have judith who is kind of like a um i identify with her um is like (laughs) kind of like a bowl in a china shop but sometimes she doesn't even realize like how strong she is so can you talk about what was it like developing those two characters? Was it something that was more instinctual as the story was flowing? Or were you thinking like, I kind of need these two contrasting women to fuel this story?
3: Yeah. I love that you brought that up. Well, I think about different kinds of strength and different kinds of courage and different kinds of heroism um, a lot And it really, yeah, it takes all kinds to make a movement work, right? And from what I've seen um, is, yeah, you need the leader who is like Judith, who is just full steam ahead and damn the consequences. Um, And (laughs) that is LP, right? (laughs) <laughs> um, I don't care manager, like what, uh, how you, I don't care about your feelings. I'm going to tell you the <laughs> truth. This is what we need. Um, but that, that also can, um, can have its own way of like alienating the leader from, uh, from the other folks who are in the movement with them and, and being, too abrasive and maybe asking too much um, or more than other people are willing to give. So I I mean, this is really, it's really quite consequential for people to make the decision to go on strike. Um, And it it can mean putting your family in danger and jeopardy. It can mean actually like putting your life on the line. So I, without getting like too melodramatic. I wanted to really have that be part of the story and like have the characters have to grapple with, well, what, what do you do when someone is like, I, I don't want to, I don't want to be on, on strike anymore. Um, or like the cost, I, I thought I was with you in this, but the cost has just become too high. Um, and I I think you need that, um, that sense of humanity and how human beings work and ability to forgive and maybe make, um, make some concessions or uh, to bridge some gaps that Hannah brings. Um, And because she's, she's not a hundred percent sure at the beginning and she's really, Judith is really pushing her a lot. Um, and it's it's in very positive ways, but it's also she Hannah needs to find where she has to she has to take a stand for herself too, right? Where um where she has to be able to tell Judith no, and and sometimes that's on behalf of her coworkers too. Um, like you're you're asking too much.
1: It also makes me think too of um. Uh- Right now, it's January, everyone, and HarperCollins' uh, union is still on strike. And it really, you know, I was rereading it uh, for our interview. And so it really made me think about, you know, what's going on with them right now, you know, and how hard it must be for them to not get... um. The things that they're deserved, you know, and how hard it must be because they're going, I think, on day like 52, maybe, of the strike, and there's been no talks whatsoever. So I just thought this was just rereading the book. I just can imagine, like, you, you understand how Abigail, you know, does say, I can't do this. My, I got letters from my family. I, you know, I will go back for that extra nickel, an extra nickel, right? Like, it's like how... These assistant editors are living in New York making $40,000 a year and they're literally asking for 5000 more dollars as a raise. $5,000, right? It's an, and it's a million dollar raise all across the board when they've made double regular, like triple the uh, profits, you know? So to me, that was just really, um, interesting it was just like you know a great correlation of also what's happening now like this is also based on you know an actual union that happened in Lowell, and yet here we are like 200 years later still going through the same thing and it's um it's showing that freedom is just never ever going to be given we are constantly going to have to push uh from the greed of a few Go ahead, Marshall.
0: Oh, I was just wondering, you, you had said something earlier um, about the romance between the two characters. And I was wondering, I, I so the way I heard it, it sounded like that wasn't your intent to start off with? Or can you talk about, um, talk about um, that? Because I, maybe I misheard you, but I, um, yeah. But you said somebody told you there was a romance there. And you're like, oh, there is. Yeah,
3: I think... Um, my original draft, it was much more like ambiguous. Uh, these, these are two friends or are they really like in love with each other? Um, and I, I don't want to say it was not my intention to write it as a romance, but I think I was looking for permission to write it as Mm. a romance. Um, because what, I mean, I'm reading about like the circumstances that these young women lived in, right? They're sleeping in the same bed. They have like, you know, their lives are so intimately connected. And I think that was actually part of what drew me into the setting too, was just thinking about how close they were. Um, and but I was like, almost like, oh, I, I don't know, I don't know if this needs to be a romance or not, or like, should it be? Is that, is that too cheesy? Is that like, um, is is that trying to bring like a look at me being progressive thing to it? Um, that there's a, a female female romance um and i i you know do i even want that to be the focus of the story um and yet like i couldn't help i think in that initial draft i couldn't help writing it like with those feelings you know just bubbling up under the surface and so um yeah so when when one of my critique partners was like yeah this is a romance you should just write it that way i was like God, like, yes, I can write this as a romance. And it's fantastic. That's great, And it actually, like, forced me to go back and do a little bit more, like, historical research and, like, okay, so, like, how am I going to do this in a way that doesn't just make half the readers, like, put it down as, like, this... I can't accept this in this setting, the way that it is written. Um, And... You know, historically, there are lots of female-female relationships, um, and there really isn't anything that weird or unusual about the way that I was writing these two characters. Um, and, And so, yeah, at the end, I was just like, yeah, like, I can't imagine Judith and Hannah not being a couple at the end, and they're just... Um, like I have a whole headcanon about like their lives afterwards and oh, they're nice. just, they're, <laughs> they're going to be together forever. Wow. You know, they're, they're just meant to be together. And, um and I was really happy to write the story that way. Um, I do really like romance. I do really <laughs> like love stories. So it was just a nice, nice treat for me. Good LP. Good LP. <laughs> yeah,
2: you talked about how this was kind of a thought experiment for a magic system you built and you wanted to see how it would work historically. I'm curious about the genesis of the mag- magic system and what happened to the initial story that you were writing.
3: So it, um, that novel ha- is uh, the, the, the turd that I polish like forever and ever um, and just revise and revise and revise. Uh, One day, maybe I will actually have a version of it that I like. Um, Yeah. So, so the magic system, I was kind of, I was writing this like urban fantasy novel and I wanted to have unions in it um, even though it wasn't going to be the focus um, and, and radicals and organizers and, Um, so I was thinking about how to incorporate magic into what they were doing. Um, and of course it was an urban fantasy there was, so there was going to be a big evil corporation that was doing something nasty with magic. Um, and yeah, so that I, and I wanted to like kind of go back and really like weave the way that the magic was working into the form of production. Um, that existed. And like a lot of classical fantasy is, uh, is very like feudalism based. If you think about it, like there's this class of people who are like the nobles who are gifted with magic and they just are able to do magic like the wizards. Um, And I wanted to have a form of magic that was like a little bit more democratized. And I think you see that a lot more in like urban fantasy, the idea that um, someone can just like study witchcraft and then, you know, they can use it. Um, So I was playing with that, but then also playing with the idea of like, you know, we have to have class consciousness too. It's not just, Oh, anybody gets to go to school and learn how to do this. Um, There's still a class of people who are monopolizing, the magic in that way, and the the power that comes of it, and um, and a class of people who are being robbed of their ability and their their raw natural talents um, that they're born with. So, um, so then I yeah I like I wanted to to really like examine it in a very closed system, which I was able to do with the factory which is of Lowell. Um, so maybe one day that novel will see the light of day. I hope so. <laughs> um, I also hope that like one day I'll write other stories in, um, in this kind of universe, this alternative history universe. And so we can see magic playing out in, in other places and, and industries.
2: Well, I love that a you said up that. A not a follow-up. I'm, I'm not done. Uh, a follow-up <laughs> that is- <laughs> <laughs>
1: Raise your up, hands. Use that hand.
2: Button. I I had already. She just finished answering my question. Just give me a uh, second. So, thank you so much. <laughs> um, so uh, we've seen the the no, the tour. You know, novella novel pipeline. Um, how has how has this novella built or affected your relationship with Tor? Like I know that it started your relationship with Tor, but. Is has that grown at all due to the novella coming out? Um
3: it has not. Okay. Um and I I I will take full responsibility for that. Um because I uh developed a very bad case of writer's block and didn't do anything for about two years. Um but on the other hand, like it's a two way street. Tor hasn't like come knocking at my door. <laughs> so
2: I'm like ne- never, never take uh, full responsibility yeah. for anything. There's a corporation involved.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is good <laughs> advice.
1: <laughs> yeah, Charlotte, that's that isn't. I don't think that's your, your fault at writer's all. Yeah. At all. Well, I want to go back to one of the characters we haven't talked about yet, but still played an intro, an integral part of the story, which was Mrs. Hanson. I found her like really great because it's like, is she going to turn them in? Is she not going to turn them in? I felt like, you know, like I don't know, can we trust her? And she was like, I what I felt like about her character is that she was like the mother of them, and I think she herself was questioning, are these women going to be able to do this? Are are am I going to see these women succeed where my generation didn't? And so it's like she was weighing in her um, opportunities of what was happening. You know, is that how you wanted it to be expressed through her or talk to me about that character?
3: Yeah, she was really interesting and fun to write because I, I wanted to have, um, have a female character from a different generation um, who would be part of this story. And so it would have a different perspective on things. Um, and and I really didn't know what she was going to do either. I, re- I wasn't sure if she was going to come down fully on their side or not, or she was going to betray them at the end. And I think part of that was because, you know, sometimes when you see somebody, um, a, like a younger person, particularly able to do something that you weren't able to do. There's, um, there's a jealousy and a perversity that comes out and you're like, I just want to slap this person down because like, how dare they get like the leg up that I didn't get. Um, and I, you know, I, I felt all the bitterness, uh, <laughs> that Mrs. Hanson feels, um, because she's got a a tough life too. And in a way, like these these boarding house matrons, they were in a similar position to the textile workers in that now um, as single women, they were able to like have a job and it was a fairly good income and some stability in their lives. Um, And yet there wasn't like a whole lot of control and and they they didn't have the benefit of like having a union or having a group get together and like stand up for them. Um, so I, I could see like her loyalties going in any direction almost and and I also just like kind of like liked writing her too because. She's not a teenager and she could see things that like none of like the teenage characters would, you know, be able to name right away. Um, uh, And I also wanted a character who maybe had a connection to an older kind of magic. Um, For anyone who's like super interested in the intersection of witchcraft and capitalism, please read Sylvia Federici, um, the Uh, Caliban and the witch um, because she explains why witch hunting became such a popular thing in the 1600s, just as feudalism is transitioning into capitalism and the, um, the autonomy that uh, a lot of primarily women were experiencing like at home in in their own homes, being able to do kitchen magic, uh putting herbs together, you know, doing basic doctoring. That had to go away um, in order for things to become professionalized and for um for enough workers to be urbanized into factories um, and for capitalism to emerge. And and so there's like a, a very strong connection between the persecution of women who have uh, some sort of perceived power in their community um, and this like new world order. So I, that was really thematic in the uh, the novel that I was writing. So I wanted to bring that in a little bit too. Um, and, and Mrs. Hansen was kind of the one that could do it because she would have the memory and yeah, it's just, it's just always nice to have like an older mentor character.
1: (laughs) I think uh, what you said too about um, just the actual idea of having Mrs. Hansen in there, it's just that, you know, of her going through of saying, um, you know, is this, I didn't have this. And so now you're going to have it and having that bitter, I feel like we're having that conversation now with easy way student loans, when you hear people say, well, I paid off my student loans. Well, good. Well, maybe you should have fought to not have student loans. Maybe you should have fought that all pu- all universities should be free, that we're living in a world where it's just as important to go to college as it was 50 years ago to go to high school. You know, like it should be free. And it also reminded me a couple things of like some of the older generation of gay men um, who I've talked to who said, you know, these kids talking specifically about I mean, even my generation, but we'll say Gen Z, they don't know how good they have it. And, you know, like trying to basically be like they're spoiled or entitled. And I said, me and Brent, who isn't here today, talk about this a lot. I don't want them. I don't want them to go through what we went through. I don't. I don't want them – I don't want it to be a further thought that they can bring someone to their prom. I don't want them to think that they can't be themselves in middle school or high school. No. Isn't that, isn't that why we pushed for what we pushed? And like, yes, do I want them to understand history? I do. But at the same point, it's like not all of our history was based in pain. You know, mm-hmm. and I feel like what's so great about this upcoming generation is they're going to be able to see all facets of the pain and persecution that went through, but also the joy of it, and that they can have whatever type of life they want. If they want to be um, polyam- polyamorous, if they want to be like, you know, um, monogamous, if they want kids, if they don't want kids, that every single thing is just allowed to them because they're human beings and worthy. You know, and I that's what mm-hmm. I love about that character Mrs. Hansen is that yes, yeah, she was bordering but in the end it's like she was like no, I want she wanted them to have it better than they did. Um so I just want to read there's one last question I have before we then go to our final question and I just want to read this one section and it's at the end. So again everyone, if you didn't read the book, we'll stop here and go. Um Appleton turned to the Lawrence's proposing to resume their ad hoc conference gentlemen he spoke as the chorus of retoot 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 reumpany chased away the boot's coach what do you know of conjuring All right. So I just want to be like, I know maybe you've been going through some writer's block, but I just see a sequel, maybe a trilogy, okay, um, (laughs) going on because I'm just like, oh, what is going on? I just see like them battling it out, you know? Um, So was that a thought in your head when you wrote that scene? Is that something you would like to do?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I was trying to set the stage for like, what further developments there are going to be. And um, how are the capitalists going to take back the magic? Because, oh, shoot, like these workers have figured out how, um, how they can use just their natural witchcraft to take control over the machines and the factories. Like, this is not good, man. Like this would um, upset all of human history <laughs> from, from 1830 on. So I, yeah, so I I have some thoughts about that and then how it was going to eventually play out in kind of like modern times. Um I guess I don't want to say too much in case I actually do write it at some point, mm-hmm. but that's, uh, yeah, that's where I want it to go. And also I hate these guys. Like these are real people and I hate them
1: <laughs> I hate mm-hmm. them so much. I love this. I love the, <laughs> the anger coming out. So, <laughs> oh, Well, I hope you write it. I'm ready to beta read whenever you want. Okay. Um, Thank or you. just be a cheerleader, you know? Um, so my f- our final question is always, you know, like what keeps you writing? Um, like have you been able to write, um, since your writer's block? And if so, like what's keeping you writing?
3: Well, I'm not going to go to therapy, so I just like <laughs> I need to write. I need to like work this out somehow. Um,
0: <laughs> I love that answer.
3: <laughs> I I mean I. <laughs> I'm a much better human being when I have gotten up in the morning and gotten my writing in. Um, I am kinder to the people I encounter, and I am calmer. And uh, and I have just like I've had that opportunity to work stuff out. Um, and even if I never publish anything ever again, I think I still need to get up every morning and write. Because I am not the best version of myself if I don't do that.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that's such a good answer. And you are going to get published again. I don't even talk like that. <laughs> you are so good. You know. And then you'll have to come back and chat with us again. This is great. Uh,
3: I would <laughs> yeah. love to come back and chat with you anytime about your writing.
1: Oh, well, <laughs> um, thanks for I being here. Yeah, when I
2: do come back to talk about our writing. You come back and talk about your writing. Yeah, yeah you
1: are going to be the one writing. Oh, but we have to give um, Charlotte's um, socials or anywhere people can find you.
3: Um, so you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at CSMalerich. Um, You can also just type in csmalerich.com and you will reach my website. You can contact me through there as well.
0: And this has been Just Keep Writing, a podcast for writers, by writers to keep you writing. You can find us at justkeepwriting.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Feel free to reach out to any of us on our social medias, and please jump in our Just Keep Writing Discord channel. Links to all of that is in the show notes. Lastly, please support our show by going to patreon.com slash justkeepwriting. We offer daily writing prompts, early access to podcast episodes, and much more. Thanks for listening, and just keep writing.